All right, quick question. Um, do typefaces have a gender? They greet us on our, on our clock faces in the morning, on updates on our screens, in advertising on our morning commutes. Ubiquitous in our culture, and every little bit of type carries with it, consciously or unconsciously, values, tastes. So, gender, that surely is part of this formula. Uh, Marie Boulanger is uh, a type designer and author of the book XXXY, Sex, Letters and Stereotypes, and she joins us from her home in London. Marie, welcome. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for the welcome. Type designer is, is, is a wonderful thing to be. <laughs> it certainly is. It's a very niche area of design and very specific, but um, it's you know one of those areas where you can just get lost in because there's so much to do, so much to study and so much to discover, including you know very important questions like, do typefaces have a gender? Describe for us then how gender manifests in, in, in various type styles. Is there a particular broad brush that you can you know, use to sort of illustrate this idea? Absolutely. Um, and I, I do want to start with saying that typefaces don't actually have a gender. You know, they're typefaces <laughs> in the same way that a table doesn't have a gender. But what's, what, what's interesting and what I explore in the book is that we ascribe so many human qualities to typefaces mm. and you know it starts with the way that we describe them and um, even the words that we use specifically to talk about type like you know we will say the anatomy of a letter to talk about it when it's just you know a graphic shape um, we'll talk about the letters spine leg eye you know anatomical terms that we use for humans we are very comfortable with transposing to typefaces so that's kind of the starting point is how much of our own qualities we put in them. And I guess the kind of follow up from that and the broad brush I can start taking to explain how we put gender in that is that all of the stereotypes that we ascribe to humans, we're very, very willing to ascribe them to letters as well. Hmm. And that can come in the shape. Well, it can be, it can be visual. So it can be, you know, their aspect and what they look like and kind of physical stereotypes that we associate with certain genders we can do to typefaces as well. But it also goes far beyond that. It's also how we use them, where we use them, yes. what we're willing to make with them. So, uh, you know, a sturdy Franklin Gothic has certain maleness about it, whereas a, a wispy uh, serif font is, is perhaps feminine. Is that too crude? <laughs> no, it isn't. I think one of the things that prompted me to write this book and to start this research was, you know, working in design agencies and that's stuff that you would hear every day, you know, clients or um, directors saying this typeface choice is too feminine for this project or for this client. And the only thing feminine, well, I guess that you could call feminine about it would be that it was uh, a serif typeface. You know, what does that mean? And I think the way that I wanted to push it was to really explore the um, buildup of stereotypes through how they're used. So if you start to think about typefaces in categories of use, so, you know, things like display, decorative versus what is sometimes described as workhorse typefaces. So mm. things for reading long bouts of text, etc. What's hiding in there? I'm, I'm, we need to sort of put this into a couple of parts. I mean, I'm particularly intrigued by that, that <laughs> idea of the, 
where gender might lie in those workhorse typefaces. But let's go back one step from that. And what occurred to me before that is how much of sort of implied gender of of the type is situational, is is dependent on the actual use rather than the typeface itself. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And um, another thing that's explored in the research is type isn't ever just type. It's used somewhere for somebody. It's used in a layout. It's used with color. And what you start to get is like, I called it an onion of layers, you know, Mm. of stereotypes. And you get these like big clusters of stereotypes, all visual, but tied through type. And uh, there are examples in the book, you know, of um, one that really stuck with me as a coloring book, Children. Of course, you have one for boys and one for girls. And it's the same collection, same title, but different type on the cover for each one with different colors and different drawings as well. So you get this kind of like cluster of things that just push the typefaces really, really far into being perceived, sorry, as one gender or another. Is there such a thing as a typeface free of any of that association? Is there, is there an anodyne typeface? Is, is a Helvetica, for example? <laughs> Um, that's, I mean, the question makes me laugh because I work at Monotype now, um, (laughs) who owns Helvetica. So this is a, it's a funny question to me, but there's actually quite a lot of research going on with that. And there, there have been quite a few typefaces recently, um, who have explored that question of, I guess, gender neutrality or trying to be Hmm. a recent release by, oh God, I'm not, not going to remember the name, but I remember the typeface is called Epicene, I think. And I think the type foundry, sorry, is Klim Type from New Zealand. Check me on that. But I think they recently released something on that subject specifically. It's definitely like something that has picked up in recent years and that people are starting to explore. And I think the most interesting application is through branding, because branding projects, you know, because it's derived from marketing and trying to sell to people and, you know, manufacturing products, trying to sell them to a specific group of people. Gender has historically been a huge part of that. That's for me where the most interesting parts play out because it's the most visible. Well, and it's interesting too, that as as the culture moves to a far greater sensitivity of, of implied gender in all sorts of areas, it would start to look backward at, you know, the, the role of things like type because, I mean, historically, this, this must be a, a sort of fiercely male preserve, I imagine. Yes, but also, no. Um, what's been preserved is all of those very famous, very respected male figures, but there's also a lot of work being done to kind of uncover how many women uh, worked in tight foundries and helped push forward so much of the tech and the IP that we still use and own today. I'm talking people doing PhDs on this specific topic. So yes, to your question, but just want to add a small caveat that, you know, it's also, it was also a choice to not make those women visible. Every Bodoni, there is, there are women working in the shadows of, of those great names. Absolutely. And Bodoni is a great example because, um, his wife was instrumental in making his work published and known the way that we know it today. You know, I can't say that without her, there wouldn't have been a Bodoni, but maybe not. And she was a printer as well. 
and really, really was yeah instrumental in his work being what it is today. How, how much does the, does the, the sort of implied gender relationship influence the popularity of, of, of a typeface? Are there faces that are you know have been in, in recent times very popular because of that that bit of code they carry with them? I actually think sadly is the opposite. I think that the ones that have been coined as feminine, you know, through all the things that we mentioned through certain branding codes and language and ways of explaining things have kind of suffered from that a little bit. And if I talk about like script typefaces and things that are more on the decorative side Mm. of typefaces, I would definitely argue with you that, I mean, it's happened to me several times working in agencies or in publishing publishing firms that, you know, you try to do something and you just want to use a script typeface because it fits the brief and it just comes back to you as, I'm sorry, this is too feminine. Yes. <laughs> what a disconcerting thing to have said, though. <laughs> I know. Is that starting to shift? I mean, within the, the, the type design fraternity, um, is, is, is that sort of sense of what you're manipulating uh, beginning to change? Yes, I would definitely say so, specifically because, well, you know, type designers often work alongside agencies or branding contexts, and there is a huge shift there. I mean, at least what I can see, is, especially if I'm thinking of historically very segmented researchers, toiletries or like kids toys you know stuff like that that's historically been very very divided remember the coloring book example i mentioned earlier Mm. there is so much more awareness now um to not you know segment as much because it doesn't really serve anybody and you can see that being reflected in the type choices so it comes you know there are kind of two sides to that coin you have people who try to be neutral and who used, I mean, you can't see me right now, but I'm doing quote unquote <laughs> neutral typefaces. <laughs> um, neutral typefaces, whatever what, what, that what means. What font was your ear quote? <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Sign language. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people who are trying to be neutral, that's a whole other thing because, you know, I don't think you can ever really be neutral because you. You inherit so many years of, you know, typeface use and uh, what it means and what it evokes to people. So being mm. truly neutral is very hard, but you have people trying to do that. So, you know, if you're making like a gender neutral cosmetics brand, people trying to use very, very clean sans serif, very minimal weight variation typefaces to say, you know, we're saying as little as we can, basically, with this choice. Mm. And then you have people who kind of flip that on its head and are just a lot more free in how they use typefaces and kind of just free themselves from the notion that typefaces have a gender and, you know, just appreciate them for their formal and functional qualities, which I think is a much more interesting path to go down because only when we decide that we are the ones ascribing certain qualities to things, we can free ourselves, you know. What about in, in areas of, of what, what should be uh, gender-neutral just functionality, um, railway platform signage? 
um, that kind of thing. What 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 do those sort of public facing type choices say in, in general terms? I think that when you have something like that, you know, something that is so large scale and encompasses so many different questions like accessibility, legibility, being able to, you know, read information quickly, um, also a huge variety of uses on loads of different pieces of design. It kind of goes back to what I just said about choosing things for their formal and functional qualities, like that should always be, you know, your main priority, solving problems through design and using the best pieces of design to help you do that. So when, well, I really don't think gender should even be a question when you're doing something like this, especially because you're meant to be speaking to everybody, right? If you're designing um, something like um, a real network identity or something like that. But it's um, it's interesting, actually. It makes me think of um, something that happened in France. Sorry, I'm going to be speaking about France a lot, but um, I am from there. <laughs> um, about two years ago, there was a big event on violence against women because it was meant to be like one of the big causes of um, Emmanuel Macron's presidency. And it was kind of like a week of like events and debates and making it a priority and all of that. And all of the visual communication was done using a very high contrast brush script typeface, hmm. which A, looked very bizarre because it's quite hard to read, you know, specifically thinking about social media campaigns or, yeah. you know, um, and that to me was definitely a sign of something that was completely backwards because I think they were thinking, oh, who's our audience women, let's use a feminine typeface, again, quote, unquote. But they completely missed the mark thinking about, is it legible? Does it make sense? You know, can people access this easily? And it just goes to show that gender is absolutely not a useful component of typefaces. Because, you know, if you're thinking about that more than you are thinking about, can people read this? Can people access this? Does this make sense? Then, you know, you're completely backwards. Let's go to that that example you mentioned very early on of, of the sort of the workhorse, the pages of a book, say. Mm-hmm. How does that work? Oh, there are <laughs> there are so many debates on that. Um, a big question is one that I certainly asked myself: is serif versus sans serif? You know, mm-hmm. um, where does gender sit in that? But really, what I found and what I say in the book at some point is that thinking about just physical i'm going to say physical even though it's a weird word for typefaces but physical qualities doesn't make sense there's a point where you just lose the argument you know where do you stop does it mean if you have a bigger weight is it feminine or masculine because you know what proportions are feminine or masculine you quickly kind of get nowhere and that's why i bring in the use um the use of typefaces as a kind of really much deeper and more important dimension and you know remember the onion Yes. The visual, the visual aspect doesn't really get you anywhere. It's just a very flimsy first layer that people, you know, because it's the easiest thing to see. So it's what people stop on, and I think it's what the people who designed the campaign for the violence against women thing stopped on. But really, they were building upon the um, ways of using typefaces and the cluster of stereotypes much more than just, you know, oh, this is scripty, it's feminine. 
It's a wonderful thing that we are, uh, are sitting down and, and, and parsing our culture for all these elements and all these aspects. Yeah, um, no, it's it's. I think it's humbling to kind of re-examine yep, our culture and what we've been taught and told. One of the reasons I wrote this book was because I looked up for some research on this subject and I found mm. absolutely nothing, like zero. You know, I thought this is something to be done. Like this is something that needs to exist. And I could never have anticipated where this book took me. But, you know, I'm, I was contacted to be like a consultant on some branding projects, you know, specifically regarding gender and typeface choices. I've been, you know, involved in discussions um, of that nature, you know, trying to kind of recalibrate where we are. And I think that's a very, very privileged position to be in. Indeed. Murray, thank you. The, the book currently is only available in French, as I understand. Is there an English translation in the wind? Uh, there is. It's ready. And I'm in talks with publishers and, you know, trying to make that happen. Just so sorting out a body font. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I have the typeface. It's all good. Um <laughs> Only chosen for legibility purposes. Um, <laughs> I just realised what uh, I said there in, in body font. There is an example of, of exactly, precisely yeah, yeah. what but you say. I think it's one of the first things I say in the book, like those words, you know, body and weight. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, but of course, I, as soon as the book gets out, I'll, um, I'll send you one. Murray, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. The, the book is XXXY, Sex, Letters and Stereotypes. Keep your eye out for it in, in English translation or, yes, currently available superbly in French. Murray, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Murray Boulanger. Uh, this is Blueprint, Radio National.